place really clears out when the kids leave. <laughs> uh, you know, looking out at y'all, y'all look good today. I mean, this, this is a great group of people, and I have no doubt in my mind. Hey, don't, don't, don't get ahead of me. Don't steal my thunder here. I have no doubt in my mind that you are, are connected people. You have your finger on the pulse of society. You know all the trends. Just looking at you, I know it. You know all the trendy things that you should talk about in your conversations with each other. For instance, I already know that Deflategate has already come up this morning. You know, if you're not familiar with football, you still know what Deflategate is about, uh, and it's to do with those patriots. <laughs> sorry, Goldsmith. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, it's trendy, right? It's trendy to talk about. Uh, the Super Bowl is happening today. Um, a drone landed on the White House lawn uh, over the last week or so. That's kind of trendy to, to talk about. And you not only are connected in that way, can I just say you look good fashion-wise. Uh, you, you guys dress real nicely. And you guys are, are up with all the latest trends. You know, I was looking on Facebook um, throughout the week, and I was going to hijack some pictures of people uh, from their throwback Thursday pictures uh, and embarrass them, but I feared the repercussions that may happen with that, so I decided I'm going to embarrass myself today. So now you can put up some pictures of me as uh, little young Jimmy. I'm the guy on the right with the crazy mop and the shirt that barely covers my belly. Uh, I, I, I don't know why. Um, a lot of hair, though. That's pretty impressive. Uh, get, go on to the next one. Um, that is me sitting on the, uh, the, the, the railing there. You can't see it too much, but I believe that's my dad, and he's got quite a mop on his head. Um, the next one is the most embarrassing, and that little boy with the white pants and the pink shirt is me. Yeah, I don't know if you can see. There you go, yeah. Very, very embarrassing, but can I point out that the principal uh, in, the, in the background also has white pants, so apparently I was in style um, back then. Um, but yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, I haven't come much farther with my, with my fashion. You, do you remember back in the day when um, you used to put your collar up on your polo shirts and your, and your button-down shirts? That was kind of cool. I don't, I don't know if I did it there. I think I tried. Um, also, do you remember uh, rolling your jeans? Anybody ever remember rolling the, the jeans? Um, that was kind of the end thing to do. Uh, I, again, I haven't come um, that much farther. You can take those down. Those are embarrassing enough. You know, the latest trends. Can I tell you, ladies, apparently um, yellow is coming back. It's back in for the spring. So uh, when it hits spring, bust out your yellow. You're going to be trendy. You're going to be looking good. Fellas, I don't know what this means for us, but Bermuda shorts are coming back. So. <laughs> If you got Bermuda shorts, bust them out, okay? Uh, bust them out, they're, they're, they're going to be in. Look, we, we all have our finger on the pulse of society. We know what is the, uh, the in things to do, the in things to talk about, the in things to wear. You know, we're all relatively trendy. You know, in the life of a church, we kind of do the same exact things. Us as leaders, we have to have our finger on the pulse of the church to know kind of what, what is going on that's, that's good, what, what things are trendy, and not just to do them for trending's sake, but things that uh, become popular, things that are they're good. I see all kinds of great ideas that would work in a church. I also see some things that I would never recommend in a church or just would not work. You know, I see all kinds of things, different things come across my email. Um, you see things that work in other churches, you think, wow, that's really good, but you know what, it wouldn't work in our church. Because every church is a little bit different. In fact, 
I am on an email list of a guy with the last name Rainer, but it's spelled totally different. This guy, he's been in ministry for years, he's been a pastor, and he seems to have his finger on the pulse of the church to see what is trending, what is popular, what's going on, and he sent a, an email out um, uh, at the end of 2014, and, and it was saying all the top things that the churches were going to do in 2015, just some of the things that, that was going to explode with uh, the churches in 2015. I'll share the, the, the top three. In 2015, they said a lot of churches are going to go to multi-teaching pastors. Not just multi-teaching pastors, but multi-site churches, which is pretty exciting. That means that the church will plant a church somewhere else, and then that church will plant a church, and you know, it's all about multiplication. That seemed pretty interesting. And then one thing that got me very excited was he said, trending in 2015, they're going to be a small group explosion, which I thought, man, that's, that's kind of cool. And when you think of small groups, you think of the term discipleship. You know, discipleship, that term discipleship or discipleship program has been trending in churches for years, and it has become very widely popular for churches to have discipleship programs. It's, it's interesting. Sometimes churches will hire pastors, and they call them discipleship pastors. I've filled that role. I'm somewhat filling that role here. They will hire discipleship pastors. But it's one thing just to keep up with the trends and to have programs, but it's another thing to help individuals and to facilitate growth, which is what discipleship programs should be all about. Discipleship programs and discipleship is kind of the in thing to do. People say, we need them in our church. We need to have a discipleship program. I agree, but here's one thing that we fail to realize, and churches across the nation fail to realize, it's this, that a discipleship program has never once produced a disciple. Some of you look a little surprised. A discipleship program has never once produced a disciple. It's because it's not about the programs. Isn't, isn't that the point? If you're going to have a discipleship program, are, isn't that the goal to produce disciples? Well, yes, absolutely. But what happens is a lot of churches will fix their attention and their goals all on the programs and all on the numbers, and they lose track about what is important. Look, if a discipleship program doesn't produce disciples, then what does? Well, here it is. It's a person that is living to please God and has committed themselves to living a lifestyle of discipleship that is capable through the power of the Holy Spirit to produce disciples. Oftentimes, in discipleship programs, the one who is trying to become a disciple is lost in the program that is just fixed on numbers and fixed on being just the program itself. Look, we see it with the, with the uh, discipleship books, discipleship videos, discipleship training, and all those are good, and I agree with them. We need to have them, but there seems to be this great disconnect between the programs and the relationships that are required to make these programs work. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at this idea of discipleship, and I want to go way back, all the way back to where discipleship started, and, where did, and with how it started, it started with a call. It followed through with an example and then it ends with a challenge, and that's what we're going to look at today. In order to figure out this term, discipleship, which, by the way, th this term is kind of like the term Trinity. The term, you will, you will not find it in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. But the principle of it is all throughout the Bible. This term, discipleship, you have to understand what a disciple is. Really simple. A disciple from the Greek 
is a learner or a pupil. Very, very simple, right? But it's also from the root word that means not just to learn, but to learn by use and by practice to be in the habit of doing. And so becoming a disciple is not about the classes. It's not about the sermons and the books and the training, which, again, all are good. It's about application, much like wisdom. We would define wisdom as knowledge, but that would stop short of the actual definition of wisdom. Wisdom is actually how you use that knowledge, the skillful use of the knowledge. And so with being a disciple, it's about learning, it's about applying, and it becomes the goal is to become a lifestyle that you are accustomed to. So a disciple is one who learns from a teacher, puts it into practice. So discipleship then becomes this. I'm going to give you the, 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 the kind of wordy definition, and then we're going to break it down. It, discipleship is this, is the intensely personal activity of two or more persons helping each other experience a growing relationship with God. Okay, it's kind of wordy. Simply put, discipleship is others helping others in their relationship with God, growing in their relationship with God. And the key is relationship. Disciples learn and they follow, and discipleship is the act of becoming a disciple, the act of learning, the act of following. And so when you think of disciple, what do you think of? I think of the 12, the original 12 that we find in the Gospels. You, you know them. They are common folk. They were not the sharpest tools in the box. They weren't the elite in society. But one thing they had in common, and it was this, they followed Jesus. And so here we are. We're going to be, begin at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that one of the very first things he does is he looks for, in his public ministry, what he does is he looks for a small group of individuals that he can invest in him, that will follow him, which, by the way, is no small request. It would seem, though, and you probably would agree, that didn't it seem like Jesus had a lot of followers? I mean, he had people that would follow him everywhere. In fact, he, he oftentimes had to get alone just to be able to pray. So there were times where he was pushed back uh, from the, the shoreline and had to preach from a boat. I mean, he had people that were following him. But were they followers? What we come to find out is they were more uh, fans than they were followers. Now, we know what the term fan means, right? It's, it's short for fanatic. You know, some of us are fanatical. We're fans about sports teams. You know, some of us are, are fanatical about authors or actors or musicians or whatever it may be. A fan is a fan's kind of crazy. If you've ever been to a football game, you can see how crazy these fans are. You'll also realize that fans are not just crazy, they're fickle. I know this because I'm a fickle fan. I could be watching a game, and in the first quarter, I think my team is the greatest. In the second quarter, I'm like, they're a bunch of bums, they're losers. In the third quarter, I'm like, oh, we're awesome. And if the fourth game, if we lose, I'm, ah, forget them. But I'm coming back the next week, right? I'm, I'm fickle, I'm shallow. Look, these were the kind of people that were following Jesus. What they wanted is they wanted something. Everybody wanted something from Jesus. They were fans. And so if I can get it, yeah, I'm a fan. But if I'm not going to get it, you know, forget it. What Jesus had was he had fans that were following him around. These crazy, fickle, shallow fans. What he wanted was he wanted followers. Followers were something different. Followers were someone who would say yes to Jesus, that they would be willing to go anywhere, do anything, be anything, regardless of any circumstances. A follower of Jesus is literally one who picks up his cross and follows Jesus. Uh, a, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I took our high school group 
uh, through a book called Not a Fan, uh, written by Kyle Eidelman. And I took a quote from his book, which I really, really like. This is a quote. He says this, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but they have no interest in truly following him. The biggest threat to church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. We have a lot of fans, but not a lot of followers. You know, when we hear about Jesus, we're quick to say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I want to follow Jesus. Yes, but that yes often comes with stipulations. That yes comes with expectations. And that expectation and the stipulation is that my life is going to go good. If I'm going to give you my life, Jesus, make it work all good. But we know that that's not the case. Life is full of ups and downs and sometimes a lot of downs and not a lot of ups. What happens when we have those downs? Do we just pack it in and say, oh, forget it? Or do we, as followers persevere, that is, hold up onto the pressure of life and push on to the mark of discipleship. See, that was the question that Jesus had for those first disciples. Are you going to follow me? I don't want fans. I don't want fans that are crazy and fickle and insincere. I want followers who are going to drop everything and follow me. And we're going to see one of these interactions in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to actually go through three different uh, passages this morning, and we're going to do it rather quickly. Hope that you can stay with me. Look, In Matthew chapter 4, this passage tends to get overlooked a lot. Not because we think it's not true or irrelevant, but what happens is we downplay the reaction of the disciples, of these men, these fishermen. We downplay it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at it, not in terribly great detail, but we're going to look at it so we can understand exactly what happened. So you can read along with me in your Bibles or you can look at the screens, starting in verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Again, don't downplay what happens here. This this is really an amazing passage and amazing to see what happened. Look, these men weren't just blindly following a crazy stranger, all right? They had heard about who this Jesus was. They had seen some of his his miracles. In fact, just before this, Jesus said, hey, throw your nets over to the other side. And they were pulling in all these, these crazy fish. Look, they had an idea of who Jesus was. And throughout their life, that idea and that concept was going to be solidified in their mind. And they understood that this was Christ, the Messiah. And so what he says to them is, follow me. And what happens next is nothing short of spectacular. The, the, the Bible doesn't say they had to huddle up. They didn't go, all right, James, John, come here. <clears throat> this guy's, yeah, no. They didn't do that. The Bible doesn't even say anything about indecision or hesitancy. The text says immediately. Immediately, which we understand, to be right away. But this word in the Greek also carries with it a meaning of sincerity and a genuineness. Meaning this wasn't for show. This wasn't to other fishermen to, hey, look at us, we're going to follow a crazy guy. No, it wasn't for Jesus because Jesus could see through to the heart of what they were doing. It was sincere and genuine. They wanted to reply to the master's call. And so it says they left. Look, what you probably understand is Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
are synoptic gospels, which basically means that it has a lot of the same information in it, some uh, greater detail than others. John is not necessarily considered in the synoptic gospels. He has some stuff that does go across, but not as much. But in these three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the description, the recording of this interaction, they all use the same Greek word, left. They left with him. It seems so simple. It says they left their nets. And now, I know that this is not a fishing net. I asked the legend, Wide River Web, I figured if there's anyone in the church that has a net, it would be him. He didn't have one. So I have a laundry chute basket thing. Just go with it, all right? All right. So they're holding on to their nets. They're asked to leave their nets. But if that's all you think that they were leaving behind, then we're, we're missing something. You know, the same word to, for, for them, where it says they left, is also translated in the Gospels to forsake, which means separation. When Jesus said, follow me, he said he, he, he was asking them, look, leave everything behind. Disregard what you used to know, the way you used to live. Abandon all that and let it go. Now, I know I just launched a sequence in your mind. I just said, let it go. I know what's going on in your mind. All right, hum it, sing it, get it out, all right? I couldn't think of anything more creative to say. I know, let it go, all right? But that's what Jesus was asking from them. Literally, anything that's in your life, let it go. Imagine as Jesus is talking to them, and they're holding on to these nets, these nets that they catch fish with. But it, it, it wasn't just fish. It represented their life. It represented their money, their occupation, how they provided. Look, and I can just imagine as Jesus is talking to them, they are gripping these nets, which it says they're mending, they're fixing, they're, they're just kind of holding in their hands. They're probably gripping it. And as Jesus begins to talk and they start to become and, 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 and solidify the conclusion of who this man was, that maybe the grip starts to lessen and lessen. Look, they're essentially holding on to their lives. But again, the grip begins to loosen and loosen until Jesus says, follow me. And they literally, they drop it symbolizing exactly what they are doing, leaving everything that they know behind. You know, in the Synoptic Gospels, it also says not only did they leave their nets, but they left their boats, and they left their father. Essentially, they left their families. They left everything to follow Jesus. When they left and went with him, they were no longer holding on to anything, the past in life. I wonder this morning, what do we hold on to? You know, when Christ calls us to say, follow me, it requires for us to leave the old things behind, the things that we used to do. But, you know, a lot of times it's not just leaving the old sins behind, the things that we struggle. We literally let, need to let go of everything. Some of us hold on to things in our life that really make other things look as far, far more important than they should be. When we hold on to things and let it hold us back from following Christ. We're saying that this is far more important than you are Jesus. I wonder what we hold. Well, look, we all hold on to stuff. So I wonder, what, what is it? Is, is, is it our job? Look, our jobs are important. That's how we make money. That's how we provide for our families. You've got to have a job, and you've got to do it well. But we, do we place it above Jesus? Is it our money? Is it a relationship that we're in that is holding us back from truly following God? What is it? Maybe it's not, maybe it's not something physical. Maybe it is some insecurity that you're dealing with. 
that could be physical, could be mental. Maybe you have this thought in your mind about, how could God really use me? I, I, I have this going on. I have this wrong with me. How can God use me when I can't even get over myself? Do I need you to remind you of all the screw-ups that God used throughout the Bible? I mean, he used Moses, who just, you know, questioned God time after time, and he couldn't speak very well. He used Jonah, who literally ran away from God. I mean, God can use anybody. We can let that go. I wonder if it's fear we're holding on to. You know, we're supposed to not have fear as Christians, right? You say yes to God. You say, I'm going to follow you. But maybe deep in your mind, you have a fear of what might happen if I actually say yes to God. If I actually leave everything behind, what is that going to mean? Some of us have this idea of, where is God going to send me if I say yes? I mean, I may end up in some hut, in some land that I can't even pronounce. I mean, some of us have those fears. It, it, it could be a fear of, what will God require of me if I say yes? Maybe it's a past pain. Maybe it's some sorrow that's holding you back from serving others, from being a disciple, and not only being a disciple, but helping others on their journey to discipleship. Look, when we're inward focused, when we hold on to these things, what we do is we lose sight of the fact that you and I are called to minister to others. So what is it? What is it that you're holding on to? We all can think of something that's holding us back from following Jesus. And so what he wants is he wants us to let it all fall and to follow him. And you do realize that when you say yes to Christ, when you put your faith and trust in him, it's so much more than a mental decision. It's a physical lifetime decision. There's a, a couple of quotes that I want to share with you now. One, and these quotes are uh, pretty straightforward. One is this, biblical belief is more than something we confess with our mouths. It is something we confess with our lives. Again, what you believe leading to action. And this one is... It's hard, but it's true, I believe. A belief, no matter how sincere, if not reflected in reality, isn't a belief, it's a delusion. Are we all delusional? Do we say yes with our mouths, but we don't follow through with actions? I believe that's true. If our belief is not reflected in how we live, I don't know that it's a belief. Yeah, I know we're all on a journey, but we should continually be stepping forward in that. It requires action, and it requires sacrifice. So this was the beginning. This was the beginning of the journey for the disciples. They had said yes to the call. They had committed to following Jesus, and it all started with saying, I'm, I'm going to let those things go. That, look, that was the beginning of your journey to discipleship. If you're here this morning and if you said, you said yes, I, I believe in Jesus, that moment where you said you believe in Jesus and you put your faith and trust in him, that was your beginning of the journey, and it all started with letting it go. And so they let it go. They accept the call. They leave everything behind. But look, I understand this. There's going to be moments where you and I become a lot more like fans than we do like followers. It just happens. I get that. But could you imagine being the disciples? How hard would it not have been to become a fan, and literally a fanatic of Jesus? Think of the things that they got to see, that they got to witness. Jesus was always talking to the religious leaders, and the religious leaders would try to come to him and try to get him to mess up, and they thought they would have him, and Jesus would come out with some, some saying. 
you know, some way to just basically be like, ah, child's play, you guys don't know what you're talking about. I can imagine the disciples being in the background like, oh, he told them, oh, 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 man, that was great, that was great. What about the miracles? They, remember, they were as disciples, they were riding in a boat across the sea, and they were fearing for their lives. Jesus, meanwhile, is just, you know, catching a nap down in the cabin. They come to Jesus, and he walks up on the deck, and he says, ah, hush, enough of that. Can you imagine? I'd be like, poof. Mind blown. This guy just said, hush to the storm, and the storm listened. I mean, how can you not become a fan of somebody like that? Of somebody just being able to do those things. He got to, Jesus talked to a demon-possessed man. The demon talked back to him. Imagine, looking back and going, what? Look at this interaction. And then Jesus cast the demons into a herd of swine, which, by the way, goes over a cliff and kills themselves. Can you imagine? They're all like, man, that was so cool. Jesus ended up doing the first reattachment surgery in all of history. You know, the, the, the guy's ear gets cut off, Jesus picks it up, and, and I can imagine if they were as juvenile as I am, someone's in the background going, dude, John, cut my finger off. See if he'll reattach it. I mean, how cool. You couldn't help but being a fan of Jesus. And I get it. We, get, we, get to, we become a fan of Jesus. He did some amazing things. But it wasn't always just the, the big, grandiose-type things that he did that was important. Obviously, those drew, that drew a lot of attention. It drew crowds. He had a lot of followers. But what is it that made Jesus special? It wasn't these things. It was his love for people. All these things were great, but he cared more for the hurting people in the world. He came to help those who were sick, both physically and, more importantly, spiritually. To help those who were thirsty, again, physically, but more importantly, spiritually. He was there to minister to the outcasts, the people that nobody wanted anything to do with. You remember the story of Jesus walking along, and the woman sneaks up behind him, just grabs his, his, uh, his cloak, and instantly she's healed? Any other person would have just kept going, or would have been like, ah, get off me, because she was unclean. You, you didn't want anything to do with her. Jesus stops, and by the way, he's on his way to heal somebody who ends up dying because he takes so long, but then he heals him back again. Long story. But what does he do? He stops, and he talks with the woman. He takes time with the woman that nobody wanted anything to do with. I mean, Jesus was called the friend of sinners for a reason. He went and he ate dinner with tax collectors. He even asked a tax collector to be a part of his life group. I mean, come on. Jesus made an impact on people. He cared about people. He invested in these people. Why? We're going to be the next passage, John chapter 13. And we're going to be going through verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to simply set the scene for you, and you can kind of catch up on the sides. But look, the disciples... And Jesus, they're gathered for the Last Supper. The disciples didn't really have a clue that that was going to be the Last Supper. But keep in mind this. What Jesus knew was that this was going to be the Last Supper. He knew, he had a clear view of the mission that God had in store for him. And he even knew that Judas was going to betray him. So he knows all these things. And yet what he does next speaks volumes as to who Jesus was and what he was all about. It says he gets up from dinner. He grabs a towel and a basin of water, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, if you were here when we went over Luke chapter 7 and the woman that was washing Jesus' feet, you already know my opinion on foot washing. Yeah. Okay? I think it's kind of disgusting. And I love each one of you. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to offer to wash your, feet, wash your feet. Just probably wouldn't happen. But Jesus, what did he do? The Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, gets up from dinner, gets water, 
gets a basin right before, right before the very creation that he was a part of creating was about to turn on him. His last moments, what he displays is what kind of king he was. He was a servant king. It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the crowds. It was the people Jesus touched and the lives that he changed. Jesus puts it all on display for these disciples. His, his life group, he puts them all on display. He shows them the master, the teacher, takes the place of a servant, and he does for them what each of them would never do for the other, is he washes their feet. And they were just like, Jesus, what are you doing? What? I don't understand. Why do you do this? And Jesus, in the scripture, he said, look, you're not going to understand. But then he says, look, here's why I did it. I did it as an example for you to follow. He did it as an example of what servanthood really is. He did it to show them that they mattered, that people mattered. He did it for them to show that he loved them, that he was invested in them, and that he would do anything for him. And he did it so that they would, in turn, follow his example and invest in other people. One author says this, Jesus never asked anyone to do or be anything which first he did not demonstrate in his own life. You see, it was the people that mattered to Jesus. It wasn't the fame, it wasn't the notoriety, it was the people. And people should matter to you and I because they matter to him. Now, if I asked the question, do people matter? You would say yes, and I would agree. So if we say yes, and our answer is yes, then the question is this, who are you investing in? If people truly matter to us, we're going to be investing in people. Now look, if you've got kids, if you've got a family, you are investing in them, you're investing in your wife, you're investing in your family, that's your number one priority, and that's what you should do. But it doesn't stop there. Our lives don't stop in our own household. They go out into the world. So who are you investing in? Look, you're not going to be able to invest in a lot of people. It just can't happen. But what you can do is follow Jesus' example and find a smaller group of people to invest in. So who are we investing in? Francis Chan in his book, Multiply, which is a great book, by the way. I, I, I would recommend it. He says this, and again, I agree. The church is a group of redeemed people that live and serve together in such a way that their lives and communities are transformed. What matters is your interaction with people God has placed in your life. If you are not connected with other Christians, serving and being served, challenging and being challenged, then you are not living as he desires. And get this, the church is not functioning as he intended. Jesus says to the disciples, okay, here's the call. The call is to let everything go, Whatever's holding you back, let go of it. And when you say yes to God, you are forever changed and you forsake the old ways. And now he says, look, you've accepted the call. Now I want to show you the example. And the example is this. I want you to invest in people. Our God is a relational God. What, is he, what he did is he created you and I as relational beings. He sent his son to have a relations with our, the, the people of the world, to invest in them and to to, to show his love and how much he cares for them. And he wants each one of us to invest in the people that are around you. Look, I've said it before, the people that are around you, are, it's, it's not by chance that they're in your life. It's not a coincidence. They're there so you can invest in them. And, and it's going to be in multi-levels. I get it. We all can't be like super, super tight with each other. But we, we've got to be able to invest 
You know, I, I read a quote that said, um, small groups, and I replace it by life groups, life groups are our best intentions placed on a calendar. What that means is you and I have the best intentions to get to know people, to invest in people, but unless we schedule it, we, our lives are busy, man. I get that. But what God wants from you, what God wants from me is to follow the example of his son and invest in other people. Look, this is true for individuals, it's true for families, and it's true for churches. We need to be intentional about the relationships that we have. That is the example that he gave, but he just wasn't done. He didn't stop there. He gave the call, he gave the example, and now he's going to give a challenge. Jesus had been challenging these men, these poor men, right? I mean, they were just pulled from the boat. I mean, they just—they were messed up just like you and I, and he'd been challenging them from the moment that he met them. He challenged their entire lives. Again, challenged them to, to let everything go. He challenged them to stand up in the face of adversity. He challenged their faith when they couldn't understand why did you do this or even how did you do it. But Jesus knew there's going to be hard times, and I'm not going to be here forever, but I'm not going to leave you alone. So here they are. Jesus had just been put to death. The disciples were scared, they were alone, they were confused, they were trying to process everything that they'd seen, everything from the moment they met Jesus to what had just happened to him on the cross, just trying to wrestle with all those events. And then, all of a sudden, three days later, what happens? Jesus enters the room. I mean, think of the shock that are, that's on their faces. After they get over the initial shock, they were relieved. And they could hardly believe what they were seeing. After that, we know Jesus showed himself to over 500 people before he issues one more challenge. And we find it in Matthew chapter 28. It's up on the screen. Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is his challenge. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course, we know this as the Great Commission. In fact, Pastor Larry did a series this year looking at it in detail of this great commission. This, in fact, was the last challenge that Jesus gives. And how does it start? It starts with two letters, G-O. It starts with go. That's what it was. But look, this doesn't just mean that you need to go to a land that you cannot pronounce. It might. It does not just mean to go to a foreign country. It may. It doesn't even just mean to go down the street. But it may. It's a challenge about continually making disciples. This word go means to pursue the journey on one which has, one has entered. Excuse me. You realize that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it began a journey. And it doesn't end. It's not a one and done. It's not a 12-step program. It's a lifelong journey. But what people want and Christians around the world want is fast food religion. That's what we want. Read a book. Pray some prayers. Go on a mission trip. Help the needy. Go to church. Boom. I'm disciple. It doesn't work that way. Discipleship isn't a fad. Discipleship isn't a trend. It's not a passing trend that we try to put ourselves in. It is literally a lifestyle. It becomes a lifestyle change. You know, those of you who ever went on a diet, you know that they say, the experts say, I don't know how expert they are. They say, don't go on a diet. Make it a lifestyle change. Because if you go on a diet and then you lose some weight and then you come off the diet and you're just back to the chips and the fries and all that kind of stuff, that, that's all part of my diet, then what happens is this. You, you gain back all the weight that you gained uh, before the diet and, and, and then some. They say it needs to be a lifestyle change. You need to just wholesale change the things in your life, which I've never been able to do with my diet. Um, that's what we need to do in our spiritual life. 
He challenges him. He looks. He says, look, it's about adopting a lifestyle, about continuing, about going to make disciples, who make disciples. Look, it doesn't stop. If you're here this morning and you have said yes to Jesus to forsake all that you know, then you have no doubt seen the example in scriptures and you heard the example today. And what he wants you to do is to follow his lead, invest in people and make disciples continuously as a lifestyle. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? I mean, practically, how do we do that? It says in the, in the scripture, by teaching or instructing. Look, this doesn't always mean opening a book and going through a lesson. You know, fresh out of college, I had these discipleship books. And uh, I would schedule an hour with an individual, whether it was a young person or a adult or whoever it may be. I'd schedule an hour with them, and we'd sit down, and I would disciple them. And we'd get through the lesson, and we'd leave. And I'm like, ah, it was a great discipleship session. Look, I did more teaching in the life that I lived more than I could have ever fit into that hour session. I'm not saying those discipleship books are bad. Don't get me wrong. We need to be studying the Word of God. But what happens is we oftentimes are able to teach better with how we live. Why is that? It's because actions speak louder than words. The disciples, look, it would have been really easy for them to, to go, yeah, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, and then Jesus is gone, but then he's back, and then he gives us challenge, and then he's gone again for them to go, you know what? <sighs> I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think I've had enough. It would have been real easy for them to give up, especially because they were facing persecution. Many of them died for their faith. But if you look at what they did after Jesus ascended, they did not go back into a hole. They did not just say, no, forget it. No, they started their own life groups. The, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit came down, and they were preaching, and they were teaching, they were meeting in their homes. The, the, the gospel exploded. They invested in people. They instructed. They taught. They taught through a lifestyle That's what the disciples did. It wasn't just some passing fad. They were willing to lay down their life for their master, whose call they had already accepted. So what about us? What about you? What about me? Are we ready to accept the challenge to continually make disciples? Are we ready to put legs on our faith and say, I'm going to allow Jesus to be part of my life, not just part of my religion? Are we ready to do it? You know, becoming a believer, becoming a Christian, a Christ follower, saying yes to Jesus, it's not the end. It's but the beginning. It's but the beginning of a very exciting, yet very challenging journey that you are on that will not end until you see him in glory. So we can ask ourselves the question, how am I becoming like Christ more and more each day? You know, we lose sight of why we're living. And you know why we lose sight of it? It's because we get caught up in the doing of church rather than the being of church. We get caught up in the programs rather than the people. We get caught up in, 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 the, in, in the seats rather than souls. We get caught up in the eye rather than the individual. It's not what discipleship is all about. It's not a passing fad. It's not a trend. It's something that you need to adopt as a lifestyle. And it starts with accepting the call, saying, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to leave everything I know behind. 
I'm going to follow his example, and I'm going to set the example for other people, and I'm going to invest in people because people matter to God, therefore they matter to me. And I'm going to adopt the lifestyle. It's not going to be a one and done. It's not going to be a, a, a fast food Christianity. It's going to become part of my life. Every day of my life is going to be about discipleship. And so I ask you today, are you going to accept the challenge? It's a tough one. It's a tough one because we all struggle with it. Are we going to be fans or are we going to be followers? That's the challenge today, and I hope, I hope that we continue to move towards being a true follower of Jesus Christ, abandoning it, accepting the call, following the example, and accepting the challenge. Let's pray. God, you have given us a challenge today. Lord, you have set before us, in your word, as we look through your word, set before us exactly what we need to do. Lord, when you sent your son to this earth, you sent him as an example to follow. Lord, I thank you that we can put our best foot forward and to try to be a true follower of Jesus. Lord, we pray for the strength for the times that we become more of a fan than we are a follower. It's so easy to do. Lord, I pray for us as a body of believers here. Lord, we want to embrace discipleship, not just as a program, but as a lifestyle. That's where true growth really happens. Lord, I pray that each one of us has felt the challenge today and that we can walk out these doors and, and commit to it. Not letting the moment pass us by, but to committing today to being a true follower of you as we've accepted the call, Lord. You've given us the example and you've given us a challenge. Lord, help us to accept it. And thank you for the strength that you're going to give us to do that. We're grateful for how much you love us grateful for how you provide for us. And we look forward to how you're going to continue to work in and through us as individuals, but not also just as individuals, but as a church, as we embrace this lifestyle of discipleship. We thank you again in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.